you know, part of the part of the secret sauce was kind of that tribal knowledge inside the e-commerce space, like we talked about. But there's there's two drivers that I've really focused on when building this company. One is the right people, and then the second is resourcing those people, meaning financial financial you know capital basically, and investing and resourcing up. And I think there's this really interesting barometer as a founder and a CEO that you've got to use to know how much capital to deploy in different parts of your business. When we started, we knew that we had to be a sales-focused company, and I knew I didn't want to be a sales-focused Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Evan Walker. Evan, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, for starters, CEO of Route, uh, there's a whole bunch of things in your background I want to talk about, but we'll start with CEO of Route, big announcement. You guys got your $1.25 billion valuation in under three years with the, this this Series B round for $200 million. Congratulations. Thank you. Appreciate that. So for people not familiar with Route, how do you explain it? We are a e-commerce company that basically tra- and aggregates all orders in a single application. So think of us as you're shopping online as a consumer, you check out, typically that journey says, thank you for your purchase. And that merchant sends emails. What route does is basically pick that up at that point and invites the user to keep tracking inside the route network. Basically that enables the user to track everything inside of a single application. So imagine opening up our app and all merchants through the world, over a million merchants are automatically connected and you can see exactly where your stuff is at on a map. That's primarily what we do. There's more parts of our business, but the name of the company is called Route. We basically route things across the world for our users and that's kind of the primary concept. And then we basically, you know, accessorize that in many different ways. Well, uh, start with a shout out to, to my good friend who sings your praises, Bryant Robertson over there with you guys. Yes, yep. Brian, Brian is absolutely amazing. He's actually like employee kind of ground zero, number zero. We had it employee number one after Brian, actually, he didn't join us full time for a minute, but Brian is the one that created the first user interface for the map and he's an absolute brilliant designer. So I would like to second that shout out to Brian. Yeah, I'm excited. He and I are going on a snowmobile trip this weekend up to Montana. It should be fun. Oh, nice. Awesome. Um, so let's talk about some of these numbers. You've tracked 175 million packages, 5.2 million app users, 35 million customers, 11,000 merchants. Can you talk about some of the reasons that you guys are just achieving traction, like where maybe other folks wish they were? Yeah, you know, part of it is historical. When we launched the business, we had a lot of product market fit with, with, a, with a big part of our product, which is protecting shipments. When we protect shipments for merchants, we build this trust with the user, the end user, the customer, and the merchant. And that trust basically enables us to sit in this really interesting part of the e-commerce chain on the customer journey that just really doesn't exist today outside of route. So we build trust with those users. And I think a big part of that traction is like we've we had enough e-commerce experience before we started the company to identify where those holes were. And we had a product vision, I think, that that kind of slid right into this, this empty white space inside of e-commerce. And so there's a lot more to it than that. I'm happy to, to talk about all of it. I think the primary you know, driver of that is like really kind of building trust with the merchant and consumer for us to, to win that real estate from them and be awarded that real estate that they trust us in handling kind of the you know big part of their user journey. You know, maybe let's give people like a little bit more of a visual representation of what this is like. 
So, you know, we've had Davis Smith from Code Epoxy on here. I see them on your website or like one of my favorite brands, Liquid Death, the, yeah. the, <laughs> the canned water guys, right? Yeah. So do I understand it's like I'm ordering my Liquid Death or my Code Epoxy and I, I click to add just a little bit for the insurance and tracking for you guys to make sure it actually gets to me or help me understand that? That's right. Yeah. So um, the first thing you would see on a merchant website, there's multiple entry points throughout, but if you're shopping on a website, the first thing you're going to see if that partner has our protect product enabled. So there's track, protect and discover. So the first thing you'd see in that user journey is protect. User has the ability to select shipping protection. What that really does is enable and kind of empower that user and that merchant to not have to deal with order issues. So if something's lost, damaged or stolen, from a user perspective, you can now click a button and instantly resolve those order issues. The merchant doesn't have to sit on customer service trying to figure out where their stuff is at and locate, locate it because we're also a tracking company. We know where those things are at. So we've kind of modernized shipping insurance and shipping protection in this one-click action as opposed to go to drive down to UPS, fill out a form, or sit on hold with American Express for an hour and a half. And then Amex has to call somebody and you know it's back and forth toggle. We turn that into a couple of clicks in, in a matter of seconds and we resolve those order issues. The next part of the customer journey is when that user checks out, uh, we'll say, thank you for your order and invite that user to go track their stuff for the next, call it five days in transit. They can see where their stuff is at in real time on a map. And that, where is my order question is the biggest question in e-commerce customer service. We answer that visual with, you know, um, a lot of help from our good friend, Brian, who has helped us create that map to, for a user to check in and see exactly where their stuff is at on a map in real time. And we knew that was kind of the best way to answer that question really early on. Um, that's where Brian came in. So we invited him to, you know, come, come help us design this part of the app. And, and today it's still in there. We basically then take that data and we're triangulating that between 700 shipping carriers across the world and over a million merchants now to show that user where their stuff is at from any merchant. And if anything happens to it, that shipping protection allows them to click a button, instantly resolve the door issue. You know, I think a few of the things that were really intriguing to me as an entrepreneur, like thinking about being a merchant of you guys, right? is I think one of my favorite ones is this idea of eight to 10 additional touches per order, 92% of customers enable push notifications. Like that chance to like build trust and like have that frequency be a little more top of mind. Like no wonder you, you've got higher customer engagement. No wonder like I as a merchant by having you handle this for me, get more chances for repurchase. Like, I mean, I think about like as a sales guy or like, you know, even as investment fund CEO, I feel like I'm just top sales guy, right? Yeah. Like it takes a lot of touches with investors before they're going to write you a really big check, you Absolutely. know, like, and so you, like, I think for like a product company, being able to speed up my frequency to be able to get more of those interactions faster, like what an advantage. You know, it's, it, it, there is, there's network effects around it. So if you look at how many apps are in the app store today, um, no one's going to download, you know, Nike and Adidas and all these different Lululemon, and all, I'm using sports brands for some reason, but they're not going to download all those apps to track all of their stuff and resolve issues. So we basically aggregate that in one place and it provides this network effect. And that network effect of, you know, the more merchants connect and the more consumers that connect to that, the more activity is inside this network, creates that eight to 10 times more engagement. And that's where merchants started, you know, building that trust with us to say, look, you know, we have a hard time re-engaging through email and paid retargeting is expensive and the cookie laws are changing. And so it's going to be harder and harder to keep retargeting customers as, as we now know through Facebook and, and platforms like that. So we're kind of this platform that just didn't exist 
to be able to aggregate that traffic and to re-engage their audience. When you look at it like a merchant, their math is really not that complex. It's like the reduction of the cost to acquire customers, the reduction of CPA and the extension of the lifetime value. So we sit inside these pillars, we reduce the CPA because we build trust with shipping protection and then we extend the lifetime value by being just like you said, that two-way communication between the merchant and the user at eight to 10 times higher. So we're like four to 500% higher engaged with than any uh, channel after purchase. You know, I, I'm like, ideas are great. And without the right idea, nothing happens, yeah. right? There's a lot of people who work, like everybody who tells me, oh, it's 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. I'm like, listen, I know people who put 99% perspiration into the wrong idea that that's yep. not going to get it done. <laughs> right? Like, like conceptually having something struck, like a structurally, like, you know, a no brainer for the merchant, a no brainer for the customer. And like, that's great. Right. And yet so easy to screw up, you know, like, <laughs> The idea isn't enough either, right? It's like, do you need a car or a driver? You need both, okay? Great. Yep. So my question is, when you think about how you've gone about this, I mean, getting 35 million customers in under three years is a, is a pretty enviable stat for most of the entrepreneurs listening today. You know, what else would you attribute that to? Like, let's say somebody else who had your idea, if they hadn't done what you'd done, where were the chances to not get 35 million customers so far? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And I fully agree with what you're saying, by the way. I think when I heard ideas are cheap, that, you know, that phrase... I, I just like you, I disagree with that. You know, that's, there's a lot of bad ideas out there that people work really, really hard on, but it does, it takes both. We, um, you know, part of the, part of the secret sauce was kind of that tribal knowledge inside the e-commerce space, like we talked about, but there's, there's two drivers that I've really focused on when building this company. One is the right people. And then the second is resourcing those people, meaning financial, financial, you know, capital, basically and investing and resourcing up. And I think there's this really interesting barometer as a founder and a CEO that you've got to use to know how much capital to deploy in different parts of your business. When we started, we knew that we had to be a sales-focused company, and I knew I didn't want to be a sales-focused company in our future. But being a sales-focused company and not a product engineering company allowed us to create more revenue quicker. That revenue allowed us to go raise more money. More money enabled us to hire more engineers. And so... We use this really careful barometer to say, okay, year one, it's about making as much money as we can. Why? Well, we need a bigger check to hire the engineers to build the product we need to. And I think a lot of people focus on the product, which is great. I'm a, I'm a product focused, not a sales focused CEO. And so for me, that was kind of a, a, a walk in the direction I wouldn't naturally go in, but we had to have the resources to be able to hire the better people and to financially resource them up enough, essentially to, uh, to, to actually make an impact. That second year enables us to build so much product that we would never would have the opportunity to build if we didn't have the kind of sales revenue we did to get the bigger funding rounds coming through. Our Series A round is $35 million Series A round. We were live for about a year and two months when we raised that. Very large Series A round, especially you know for a, a one-year-old company, and we we basically you know took that use of funds, and it mostly went into developing more product at that point. So to your question, I think like those two drivers, people and money, and then knowing like how to you know oscillate between the right resources to build at the right time, I think is key, and a lot of that is just gut instinct, I think. Which if you're paying to your gut and paying attention to the market, people can absolutely learn that. Well, let's talk about your history in this. So my understanding is you you started NetSoft when you were like 14 and sold it when you were 19 for like 10 million yeah. bucks. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. What did NetSoft do? So Net, NetSoft, um, you know, we, we actually never disclosed the, the purchase price, but there's been some editors trying to, to get the numbers out of us. Oh, okay. Really clever how they get it out. 
Um, they know it was at least for $10 million, but it was never fully disclosed. So NetSoft, this was, you know, totally dating my, my amount of experience in e-commerce now, but this is like 1994 internet's, you know, first started uh, to come around. I was a teenager selling video games. Video games at the time were not cloud-based. They're on CD-ROM software. We're talking like StarCraft, Duke Nukem. Someone entered a friend of mine said, hey, come play StarCraft with me online uh, on the internet. I said, what the hell is the internet? Finally figured out what it was. And I got on this thing and I'm like, wow, I can sell stuff on here. No one knows that I'm a 14-year-old kid. Learned how to build a website. Sold like two video games. Thought that was awesome. I got frustrated. I wasn't selling more and got into productivity software. Started selling um, software to military bases. And the entire uh, company just really took off. So it was one of the largest software retailers, essentially online at the time. No one had any idea that I was, you know, 15 years old at this point after things really started taking off and just milling a ton of like kind of, you know, CD-ROM software. Um, sold that business at 19, but really like that was kind of a foundational piece I needed in e-commerce. It was such an early view and so many things have changed about it back then, but it's the fundamentals really haven't. Spend money on customer acquisition. You know, look at that merchant math. What's your lifetime value? If you can recoup, uh, recoup those costs quick enough, you basically have this profitable model that you can keep reinvesting in. And it was this foundation from that company and then other companies after that that really kind of built that plateau of like how to scale an online business, essentially. Yeah, it's funny you talk about those games. I think we are probably pretty similar age. I'm 41. How, how old yeah. are you? Yeah, 41. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I remember Duke Nukem and Doom and those like yes, keyboard based. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm interested, what's an example of something from, you know, 94, 96 that, that you is still helping you today at the billion dollar startup? I would say customer acquisition would be a huge part of that. I think the mechanics of how e-commerce works, you know, start up a website, plug in an e-commerce merchant account. The fundamentals are, have all kind of really stayed the same. I think customer acquisition has evolved so much. I mean, back then it was write a check into I mean, Google wasn't even around. This is like pricewatch.com, I think is a site I advertise on. I don't even know if they're still around. I haven't looked in 15 years, probably. Uh, there's probably something up on there. But I think my entire marketing bill was like $100 a month and it was generating half a million dollars a month of revenue. Those op opportunities just obviously don't exist anymore. They finally figured out they can make money on every click, not just to like pay $100 <laughs> to be a part of the network. So I think, you know, a lot of the fundamentals of e-commerce, what's what's interesting is before Route, even the last couple of years, that, that e-commerce call to action on the thank you page has been exactly the same. Thank you for your order. We're going to send you a bunch of emails. And that's, that's when the, the light bulb really came off, you know, went off for us was like, no one's really changed this. All of your stuff ends up in a spam folder inside of email or buried inside of other emails in your inbox. Can we take this and make it interactive and much more, you know, rich and engaging. And that was kind of where that I did initially spawn from when we started thinking about the product side of it anyways. Yeah. When you think about that evolution for customer acquisition, obviously you guys are winning at that game. What's, what's a principle that's working today that maybe not everyone is caught up with? It's a good question. I think if you're a D2C merchant, your customer acquisition strategy is going to be much different than ours. We really focus, we, we kind of have this dual side of market, not kind of, we do have this dual side of marketplace. So we've got the, the end consumer on, on one end of that. We acquire consumers by building trust with merchants. We focus on acquiring merchants because they're brand partners for us. You mentioned we have 11,000 of them. The fundamentals for us are not actually about online activity. I think I think there's most companies actually over building out an account executive program that is operational excellence. You know, good old pick up the phone and and make the dials. And a lot, of, I think I think most you know tech companies are going to start off or hoping they're going to launch 
platform and everybody's going to come rolling in. But I think the successful ones, it's roll up the sleeves, pick up the phone, make the calls. And that's really, you know, largely how we've kind of built that momentum behind the business that we have. It's good old fundamental, fundamental like uh, old fashioned sales skills. You know, it's interesting because it's so appealing to have an online model that that does the work for you. And you don't have to deal with rejection and you don't have to deal with your sales reps who are dealing with rejection. And yet like early traction, man, it's pretty hard to beat a human to human interaction with live concerns being handled immediately, a little bit of rapport built, right? Yeah. Yep. That's right. You know, I think some businesses get lucky if if the, the product or the platform is inexpensive enough for uh, a merchant, you know, 10, 20, 50, hundred dollars a month. Businesses a lot of times are willing to sign up, you know, for those types of platforms without talking to, to people. And if you can get that customer acquisition cost to, to back out, you can go spend a hundred dollars to acquire a $50 a month customer and the retention's 12 months, six months, whatever, you know, that's that CPA LTV dynamic. I mean, you've got an incredible model. You can sit back and just plug more money in the machine. When, when the product gets more expensive, businesses just want to know what they're investing in. And so I think there's, there's a lot of people when they're starting out, they're just kind of a little gun shy to pick up the phone and make the calls. Myself and, and Mike Marino, my co-founder, we were the ones making the sales calls for quite a while. We're still on sales calls today, you know, just to make sure that we have our ear to ground to the ground, even though we pick up about a thousand new merchants every month. But it's so important that founders get on the phone and hear why they're getting rejected and how they can change and pivot their sales messaging. It's, it's, I mean, we always said, if you miss it by an inch, you can miss it by a mile. When we started the business, it was like this thing we constantly said, because if, if our pitch was a little bit wrong and it wasn't resonating, which it, it wasn't initially, the first couple of months, people were not fully getting what we were doing. We we're trying to get test merchants on. And then we changed some of our messaging, the whole thing unlocked. I mean, it was barely, barely tweaked, barely iterated from, from the original message and it unlocked the entire thing and it started working. And then that first, you know, five or 10 people that sign on, which this is another uh, huge, huge reason we got traction out of there. We just begged, borrowed and pleaded for people to like join our early adopter program. No one wants to be the first, but once you have five or 10, you can go tell someone, Hey, you're not the first one anymore. And then 10 turned into a hundred and a hundred turned into a thousand. And just that amount of, you know, sheer determination and go get those merchants in initially create the momentum for other people to say, look, they must be doing something right. Other people are on the platform. And then that momentum finally starts to kick in a little bit. Wow. That's, that's exciting. You know, I know you guys were not quite stealth mode, but you, but you were a little under the radar for a while, a little less public. (laughs) Now that you're, you know, doing articles in Forbes and, and getting all this coverage, we're kind of winding down for part one here. So I think it may be a good question to end on. What's a question that you don't get asked enough? When people are interviewing you? That's a that's a fantastic question. I would, you know, I, I think probably where we are going with the product outside of what it looks like on the surface. Like what is Route really, really up to? And uh, if, if you look at the platform, it is designed in a way that's decentralizing e-commerce. We call it DCOM. It's, does it track your stuff? Absolutely. Is it shipping protection? Yes. We're kind of rebuilding these Amazon amenities for the rest of the direct-to-consumer merchants of the world. You know, make it easier to buy, make it easier to return, track everything in one place. There's this really interesting connective tissue that we're building across this decentralized layer in e-commerce. And we don't really talk about that a lot, not intentionally. I just don't think, you know, people have really asked about it. So decentralized, you know, to me that it sounds like it's a little bit related to where the world is going with web 3.0. Yeah. We get to own ourselves instead of Facebook owning us or LinkedIn owning us or something. Is there, right. is there a relationship there at all or not really? You know, I think the, dis- like you don't, you don't have to rely on Amazon for everything. That's it. Yeah. That's exactly it. You know, that's, that's where I was kind of going to that too. It's like Amazon's kind of eating the e-commerce world. We, the way we look at it is a, a user should have the ability to shop wherever they want to shop with the same type of service level that's been provided inside of a single platform. 
So, you know, could you go to any site in the world and buy very easily? Uh, would you trust that site more if you knew you could click a, a couple buttons and instantly resolve order issues? Would you be able to have that same transparency and communication inside of a single platform where, you know, you're open, the world is open to go shopping, go ahead and roam, buy where you want to buy and discover merchants that you wouldn't be able to, to discover otherwise. And so I think, you know, our strategy of how we've done that's been um, kind of interesting approach to that but but you know the the relation is probably the disintermediation of like aggregate something aggregated inside of a single platform so we're we're really the switzerland kind of platform that is open to connecting with anything we're building this api layer across platforms and across partnerships right now it's pretty incredible listen let's end here for part one congrats on all the success everybody uh tune back in to part two i've got a whole bunch more questions for evan Sounds uh, great. Evan, if people want to check it out for themselves, where should they go on online? Route.com is is our home page and probably the easiest place to kind of you know learn what we're up to. Great. Bye everyone. Yeah. Awesome.